Mountain believes every brand should be on TV, regardless of budget or size. That's why their self-serve performance TV platform takes the difficulty and expense out of connected TV advertising. With Performance TV, you get access to tens of thousands of audience segments so you can always find your target customer. Mountain serves your ads exclusively on premium streaming networks to elevate your brand profile and auto-optimizes your campaigns thousands of times a day to ensure you're always at peak performance. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest for this in-person record, always better, so thank you, Josh, for coming in. No problem. Is Josh Johnson. Josh uh, is a great, great stand-up. He's a writer. He does all kinds of stuff out there in the world. We met him when he was our talent for our Amazon Edge channel at Advertising Week at our big comeback year in Hudson Yards, where you were spectacular. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for thinking of me for uh, it, too. It was, it was fun. It was my first time reading off a teleprompter, like, for, for, the, for the day, you know? I've, I'd read cue cards before, and I'd read teleprompter a little bit, but this was my first time being like, okay, we're going to go out, or you're going to throw this thing, and then when we come back, you're going to do another read, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, it was, right. it was long days. You did a yeah. great job uh, for us, and uh, we've stayed in touch, and your career is really booming along, uh, oh, and thanks, it's a great, great joy to talk to you. So thanks for coming in. No, thank you for, ha- for having me, for real, yeah. It's, it's been good. It's been a good year. I'm very, very thankful for everything and, and just trying to, like, scale up. I, I feel like even when I've listened, <laughs> even when I've listened to the podcast before, it's, it's been a thing of how do I incorporate? Because obviously there are things for scale, that happen in, in different fields that apply to entertainment, but then sometimes it's harder to nail down what that thing is for you. And so I've, I've really tried to take some, even when I was doing ad week, I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. I, I wonder how I apply that to trying to get jokes out to people or, you right. know, like, like right. how well, your website been. is great. Oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like now the website for a long time people thought was going to go away for entertainers and stuff, which I don't think it ever really will because of social and because of people um, really flocking to like your page, your TikTok page, your Instagram page, your Twitter handle, all that stuff that people were like, Oh, since I follow them there, that's just where I'll get all the information. But websites are really starting to serve as a central hub for a, a particular entertainer where they, they have a way of giving you everything and there's tabs to it and there's just different ways to navigate. Whereas when you're on Twitter, everything that you want to communicate to your audience and ideally would be a particular tweet. And so now you either have to have a thread or you have to just be tweeting out for an hour, like, or you can do this thing, or you can support me here, or you can check out my album. And then the website still works in a way, especially as people get nervous about YouTube content restrictions or just the different content restrictions of whatever platform they're on, that they are also starting to be like, just follow me on my website because I know everything will stay right. there. You know? Right, right. All right, we're going to come back and dig into 
social media and all the genres, if you will. But let, let's go back. You got Louisiana roots. Yeah. yeah. Time in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Were you funny as a kid, Josh? Not incredibly. Like, I, I think that I think my classmates thought I was funny and now colored with where I ended up there. It, it almost like <laughs> reshapes the past a bit to where they think I was funnier than I really was. Uh, I've, I always attempted to be funny, even before I knew comedy was a job. And I think that now I look back at it as like, oh, yeah, I was trying to be funny the whole time. I don't know if I fully succeeded. You right. Know? right. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I got to high school and then into college, I wasn't very good in science. And that went right out the window. Did you always know that you wanted to be a performer and a writer? No, I, I actually thought I was going to go into science as well. So when I was pretty, like little is a strong word, but I was in middle school and I still thought I was going to be a scientist and I really enjoyed my science classes and everything. And then once high school hit, I was like, ah, oof, this is, and especially when you're 14, I think I had the foresight to be like, I have a lot of life left. So if this is a struggle now, I don't see the overall idea of science getting any easier from here so let me let me explore some other interests before i take myself down a road that i'm just not enjoying and so i i still didn't even do anything on stage or anything i helped with the drama department like i would sell the t-shirts because it was a way for me to you know watch the play or sit in on rehearsals without actually having to you know get up there myself and i think that for me yeah, I, I, I thought there would be a bunch of other jobs that I would have. And, you know, I always loved comedy. I always loved um, the ideas that, that comedians sparked because that, that was another big thing where I, I enjoy thinking. Like, it, that, that, sounds, that sounds like an insane thing to say. It sounds like something an alien would say. But I do like when you really have to chew on a thought and... Um, I think comedians made me do that even more so than my teachers because they'd be joking about something that was both funny but something I had truly never thought of before, you know? And so I, I think that that's why I just, no matter what other interest I took, I kept gravitating back towards comedy. Great. All right. We're going to get to things like The Tonight Show and, and some of the marquee stuff, and you've had incredible specials. Uh, I think Vulture said your special in 2021 was the best comedy special on television. That was the one, uh, was that oh. hashtag? Uh, yeah, yeah, hashtag, yeah. yeah. But talk about the first time you went up on stage. I would think it must have been, do you remember it? And I would think it must have been slightly terrifying. Yeah, I remember it fairly vividly because it was my high school talent show. And it was like... like <laughs> The stakes when you start comedy and you start doing open mics and stuff are very, very low because you're usually not going to be able to get a good gig anywhere. You're going to be doing some free open mic at a bar where you're probably kind of bothering the people who came to just have a drink and don't know a show is going to happen. But I, I do put the stakes of a high school talent show up there a little bit just because I got to go to school here, whether this goes well or not. And so it was it went surprisingly well. To say that, obviously, your friends are going to be in the audience and they want to support you so they might laugh even if it's not funny or anything. I had started writing jokes in maybe 
maybe the seventh grade um, and then didn't do that talent show until the ninth grade. And so I had been writing and, and noodling and like all the all these different ideas. But to actually put it together in a set and present it to a crowd of people was like truly horrific like it was one of those things where now when people tell me that they want to do stand-up but they're a little nervous or whatever I try to be as understanding as possible just because even though I did that for the first time very young I didn't do it again I didn't really start doing stamp until I moved to Chicago so in spite of the talent shows or open mic nights I didn't really start consistently doing it until I moved to Chicago and so yeah I was terrified and and it went so much better than I thought it would go you know it was like I had these maybe five jokes I think I was only allowed to do like five or eight minutes or something so every joke was about a minute long minute and a half long and the fact that everything was hitting was it was just like such this adrenaline rush but also a bit of validation because I I had been writing all these jokes for no one like I, no one had seen them I hadn't shown them to anyone or anything and so it it you need in in life you need little uh pick-me-ups and reminders in 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 your journey that you're not crazy and that felt like the first one of those that I ever had fantastic and the process of building yourself up as a comedian takes hours to write what might become a two, three, four, five minute set. And you touched on it, but there's a lot of uh, moments where the audience is not really all that welcoming necessarily when you're doing these open mics. We went yeah. to, uh, you know, Canners, the deli in LA, that place that's open 24 hours on oh, Fairfax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have a little room in the back. It's sort of a throwback called the Kibitz Room. Mm -hmm. and there'll be music in there, there'll be comedy, and if you go back, if you want to go to the bathroom, it's you walk through there. And I was there recently, and it was about 10, 11 o'clock at night, and there was a stand-up, and there were maybe three or four people in the room, and he called out at me as another person who he thought might be staying, and I was just literally passing through. That's got to be tough being on stage in those situations. No audience may or may not even want you there, as you said. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, I used to do this this spot in Chicago that was, honestly, it was remarkably bad. It was so bad. And it was so funny because it was so bad. So the, okay. All right. I'll, I'll tell it as quickly as I can. Because, okay. We got time. Because it's like, I don't want to take up the whole podcast talking about how bad this place was. But basically there's a, there's a strip club in Chicago where there it's a dry club though you can't drink in there so then i don't even think they own it a place next to them opened up that was like okay if they can't drink here we'll open up a bar so the people who realize they can't drink in the strip club will come next door get cheap drinks and then go back over so we'll just make our money that way right they needed not just that they needed to bring in as many people to drink as possible so they started having a comedy show at that bar and so your audience was that. Your audience was people that were already angry, realizing they couldn't drink at the at the strip club. So they come in, they take a quick shot, and they walk out. So that's who you're performing to, right? And it it was so remarkably bad as a as a an event because it was no one's fault. It was just like these are not the circumstances to do comedy in, you know. And I remember there was this one time. 
this guy was sitting at the bar and he was obviously a little off, like something was off about him. And the basically where we start is the the bartender is cutting him off, right? And she's like, that's it, you're done. And then he is looking at her, he's like, you think that's going to stop me? You think that, and he goes and he reaches in his bag, and everyone's nervous about what he has in his bag. He has a, his own can of beer in his bag, shakes it up and just starts spraying it around, and then he runs out, right? As he's getting ready to run out, this little guy, who's the husband of one of one of the comics is has to be five feet right gets in front of the doorway crosses his arms and it's like can't let you leave pal <laughs> and then the, the crazy guy's like wow you're really brave like he says that to him and he grabs his collar and his belt and just throws him out of the way and then he runs out as he's running out this is like maybe 10 seconds after he runs out the cops run in so they must have called the police on this dude way before she cut him off and as they're the cops are running in and he's run out they're shining the flashlight in people's faces and all that stuff like that and at this moment this is the most people that have ever been in this bar for a show so then the host goes around to the comics and it's like we're gonna start the show we're gonna start the show and, and so she just starts the show and is yelling over the bartenders try to give their statement to the police like it was the most chaotic situation and that's the first like two years of comedy i was doing shows like that like it would just be chaos or it would be a terrible venue for a show or because i it took me maybe maybe a year to get past at my first club and once you're at a club, now you're in just a better situation overall. And Chicago, great comedy town, also a great improv town. Was improv yeah. part of your mix or not really? I did take improv classes. I went to the Annoyance Theater. I don't know sure. if you know yeah, yeah, that sure. one. But yeah, I went to the Annoyance because I felt like I didn't take any Second City or any improv Olympic classes because I wasn't on the same acting track as some other co comedians were. And also, I felt like the Annoyance had the most honest approach to their classes, their entire vibe, everything. Whereas, I think a lot of people do Second City with the hope of getting on SNL or getting, you know what I mean, or, or just like rising the ranks in a very actor-centric way. And sometimes with IO, the same thing. But the Annoyance was very open and honest of like, look, we can't do anything for you. Like, we can teach you. And then right. you can go do your own thing, right. but we can't make you something. You're going to come here with what you have, and we're going to try to help you make it better. And so I really enjoyed them. And so I did a little bit of improv just to learn it, just to learn um, how to be flexible on stage and how to not be... Uh, there, there's certain people who are very funny, but they're very rigid about their set. So if anything happens, even if it's something that you really should address, they can't do it because it breaks from their set. And I never wanted to be that person. So I took those classes. Um, and then the more clubs came after the first club. You need the first club to break through to the rest. Right. Yeah, I would think that improv skill set helps in lots of aspects of life, not just on stage with your stand-up mm -hmm. but we used to do a lot of stuff here in new york with ucb which sadly mm -hmm. has really fallen by the wayside yeah and um we did something one year during advertising week we did what we call the art of the pitch mm -hmm. and we had media agencies go to ucb and take classes from improvisers on how to pitch better for business mm -hmm. and they loved it yeah i can imagine because it's also 
the the thing that improv helps you do is it reminds you moment to moment that people are not looking for you to be scripted and that people are going to have a more fun and engaging conversation with you if you're just being as as open as possible even if it means flubbing some lines or even if it means needing to explain again or explain better like going into more detail so i'd say like there's no there's there's truly no downside to opening yourself up to those classes or exploring those ideas because it makes you more comfortable in your own skin when you are pitching or speaking publicly and it helps you forge i i find that not just through the classes, but in life, taking the lessons that I learned from improv, I was able to make more friends more easily because it is a surprising thing. There, there's such a um, there's such a way that we get into pleasantries with people, especially when you're in a city like New York. You know, maybe someone will ask you how your day's going as they're ringing you up or something, but nobody expects you to tell them. Right. Like, like once, once you tell them, it's like, oh, wow, are we close now or something, you know? And I think that taking those improv classes and learning how it, it teaches you a lot about yourself, but it also teaches you how other people think. Because so many times and the little business that I've done, I've definitely been guilty of it. I think a lot of people in business are consistently playing chess with other people. And in that chess match, obviously you have to guess next move, next move, your move based off their move and everything. But I think when you have a more uh, improv open mind to how people might react, you open yourself up to more possibilities of how these reactions are going to occur. You know, Because you may step out to do a scene with a partner and you have an entire scene in your head already ready to play out that will be really funny and everything. And then they completely throw that out of the window by saying something you don't expect them to say. I find that most interactions in life work that way. Yeah, very well said. So let's go back to Chicago. You're breaking through the clubs. You're starting to have some success. Mm-hmm. Was there one particular moment or or period where you sort of exhaled a little bit and said, I think this might work? I, I think so, because I, I worked at Trader Joe's. I worked at several jobs in Louisiana and Chicago. Trader Joe's was the first job that I worked that gave, and I and personally, I think any business that's hourly based that can do this should do this because you're going to get the best people and you're going to get the happiest workers, which will lead to better work, in my opinion. But that was the first place I worked where after a certain amount of time working there. Right. So I had already been there for maybe a year and a half. They I told them I wanted to start taking classes and maybe go back to school a little bit or, you know, just do shows at night or something. And they allowed me for the better part of the week to start getting a schedule that helped me do all that, you know? So sometimes people talk about work-life balance and, and I've had bosses that were not like, I'm not trying to vilify them, but they, they sometimes had an approach to setting the hours for their employees just as like, look, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it once. And I really don't want to hear about it again. And, you know, people can make their lives work around that, especially when we need the job and we need the money. But I find that I was so much more appreciative. I was I was so much more engaged at work because I now it really felt like the work that I was doing here 
was helping me live a better life overall, which it, it already was technically before I even asked for this hours change. But when I got those change in hours, which was 10 to six, by the way, which was the most perfect, it's like, if you're out by six, now you can take your night classes or you have so much time to do shows. So it was just like perfect. Cause before that I was burning the candle at both ends. I was like opening. So I'd have to get up at maybe three in the morning, be there at four in the morning, work till noon. So I could sleep a little bit during the day, but then shows start again at eight. So then I'm, I'm on this different sleep cycle now. And, and I found that when I got that schedule change, it really felt like, okay, there's nowhere I can go but up from here. Because even, even if I never made enough money doing comedy to quit my job, I have the hours at my job that I need to do comedy. So I'm making money doing comedy. I'm making money at work. And I'm able to be rested as a human, you right, know? Right. And that was, that was the first time where I was like, oh, even if I never become like super famous, this, is, this at its very least bottom tier is going to work for the rest of my life. And then obviously, you know, you, you start making enough money, you can quit your job or you get hired at a writing job or whatever. But that was, that was the first time. Talk about more of those early days when you started to, you know, really emerge as a stand-up. Things are going well. You're going to other cities and other markets as well. Mm -hmm. At some point, I'm going to guess you gave up the job at Trader Joe's. Talk about that transition period. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't stop working. I actually let Trader Joe's and The Tonight Show overlap a little bit just in case. <laughs> Things didn't work out. Yeah, just in case. <laughs> but, no, it's like... I, I started doing, not touring really, but um, I started doing as many local festivals as I could. And what that basically is, is there's the Memphis Comedy Festival. There used to be a comedy festival called Bridgetown Comedy Fest. Um, so I was almost using each city's comedy festival to travel, to go to those cities, to get to know other comics and stuff. I remember I did Orlando Indie Comedy Festival, and that was a big one for me because I feel like I came out of Weirdly, I, I came out of that one with, I think, more relationships than some of the more, because um, I did that comedy festival in its first year. And so then there were other comedy festivals where it felt like it was a really big deal for me to even get in. But then I didn't forge the same friendships as I did at, at some of the more indie ones. And that, I think, really helped me see, because you, you have to, whether you're talking about business or entertainment or a skill set, when you talk about scalability and like trying to make yourself more universal and stuff, you're not going to know until you try until you're in a different market. And so being in all these other markets around America and my jokes were still working was the best thing, not just for my confidence, but also for my writing. Cause then when something was a little too Chicago centric, I was like, how do I open this up? How do I open this idea up for people who are never going to go to Chicago, have never been, you know, uh, then, I think that as I started to get a little bit more known by other comedians, I, I stopped because it, it happened a lot in my first year and a half. I think ego might be the, the wrong word, but I had a lot of awareness and concern for what fellow comics thought about me or about my jokes or, you know, just what I was doing and stuff. And because when you start anything, you look up to so many people at once. 
And it's not to say that I still don't look up to a ton of people, but when you're just a true novice in anything, whether you just start playing music or you just started, you know, doing comedy, there's you look up to everyone because even people who started two weeks before you have two weeks more experience than you have. And so I think once I started to travel and, and do well in these other markets and other comics saw me doing well, I think I was like, okay, I can stop worrying or I at least should stop worrying about what these other comedians think of me so much and everything and, and really focus on the audience and the crowd and everything. And from there, the real turn up career wise was moving from Chicago to New York, you know, that, that was, a, I think that was the biggest, um, I think that was the biggest thing that, that changed things for me, where when I moved to New York, it, it was a real ego death of sorts, because you are going from being well known in your city to truly being like no one again, in a sense. Um, and that didn't last long, but still for the six months that it did last, I was just like, wow, I'm, I'm only getting up at, at proper shows once in a while. No one knows me at the open mic. So I'm always going last. And like, it was just like a real back to the bottom thing. And you're also in a city that's a bit harder to, it's a bit harder to be at the bottom here than I think other places because the bottom here is particularly like, uh, lonely in a sense, you know? And so having worked here in a way that was no one knowing who I was and no one really giving me the time of day for at least a couple of times of seeing me and seeing that I was funny was very humbling in that I think that now I have a different perspective on um, how my peers think of me and how I go about thinking about other comedians because I'm also like, okay, I've been at the bottom before. And I've been at the bottom after being... Because when I left Chicago, I don't think I'm being um, unfair to say when I left Chicago, I had like really accomplished most of what you can accomplish in Chicago. I was past at just about every club except for maybe one that was opening. So it was new and I didn't have the time to put in. Um, I was working the road by then. So I was, you know, getting some gigs myself and stuff. And then I had done my first couple colleges. So I was making money that way. So I really got everything out of Chicago that Chicago could offer. And so to go from being the top somewhere to being the bottom in a much more substantial market is just, I think that that breaks people a lot of the time. And so it helped me to be there. So now that I know, let's say, goodness forbid, but let's say it happened again, where I had to start all over or something. I have the building blocks to do that now because I've done it twice, you know. And you use the word, but it, it's an interesting one. And I'd love to dig a little bit more. It can be very lonely. You're by yourself on stage. And when it's not going well, you're really by yourself. There must have been some tough moments on the journey up. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were definitely times where I questioned my overall brand of comedy. Me as a comedian, if I had the, the tools and the skills and, and um, the wherewithal to stick with it but I think that those moments were luckily very fleeting and you know I think that if you are putting yourself out there 100% of the time consistently whether it's with confidence or not I think that you get little signs whether you want to read them as signs or not I think you get little signs of like 
you know, people don't realize, and it's why I try to be extra kind or, or reach out to people even randomly. People don't realize what someone might be going through. And the amount of times where I was having a down day or I just had a bad set or anything, and then someone on the train or someone in a message on, on social would just be like, hey, I saw your set and I really enjoyed it, was like, okay, yeah, maybe I'm being too hard on myself. Like, people enjoy what I'm doing. I shouldn't. And I, I don't think I was ever in danger of giving up. Um, but as far as the feelings that you have at the low points, I think that that was a real, like, um, that was a real wake up call that you have to be self-reliant because if you are depending on outside sources for your, your confidence or your feedback in a way that's too intense, you're, you're just beholden to the mood of someone else that day, you know? But if you are determining what you're going to do and you can just take this outside noise as uh, you know grain of salt it's going to be what it's going to be i think that then you can pull the good feedback when you get it the constructive criticism when you get it you can also pull some of the praise when you need it or you know when you get it but you can also learn to ignore a little too much praise or you can learn to uh ignore you know the constructive criticism that actually has a little bit of jealousy behind it or, you know, so you, I, I think it was very tough because I had to learn all that stuff while I was learning to get good at comedy. And so it just became this, uh, this double dose of like being trapped in your mind for, for a bit on how you feel about things. Because there, there have been people that told me that I was their favorite comedian while much more famous comedians exist. And so I have to both take that with gratitude and, and take them on their word. I'm very glad you enjoy what I do. But I also can't then be like, well, I must be better than all those uh, comedians who are 30 years in making incredible work, you know? Great stuff. On the road, going to the festivals, Orlando, you mentioned Memphis, others. Who are some of the other folks who sort of helped you along the way? I think there's sort of a history in comedy of, you know, mentorship and trying to help people. Not everybody, mm -hmm. but you hear that an awful lot about trying to help folks on their way up the ladder. Yeah, I mean, no one truly has helped me more than Trevor Noah. Uh, no one has given me more time, both on stage and, and to consult with than him. Um, and no one has, like, championed me like he has. And then I think on before I ever got to Daily Show, before I ever met Trevor, there were people like uh, Kyle Scanlon, who he ran this uh, this parody website called the Whiskey Journal, and he gave me a spot contributing on it uh, for a little while. And it wasn't really I was contributing on it until I started working at Tonight Show, and then it was kind of like, oh, I don't really have time and everything. But he would give me great advice. He brought me on the road with him one or two times and and really like I had so many questions for him and you know he just answered all of them we had great times talking on you know on the trip and stuff um and then there were people like uh just fellow comics as well like fellow comics more than anything else like both of those guys are fellow comics but I just mean there are some people who couldn't do anything career-wise or, or giving me a show or giving me something 
but they could just offer little nuggets of wisdom as fellow comics and whether they had been doing it as long longer or, or not as long there was insight that they had that i i was like oh wow that's that's really smart or that i'm so glad that you said something because i was doing that um and people like sam talent um you know people people like even with sam jay i've had conversations where what i walked away from that conversation with was like this little nugget that i'm like oh so thankful that i came to the cellar that night and talked to her and it wasn't even me asking her for advice it was just me watching how she thought about something and then was like oh that's exactly right that that makes so much sense you know uh dulce sloan has been incredible to to work with both at the show and just when we talk about comedy and when we talk about our mindsets and stuff has really given me insight on what to do with success or how how you should look at yourself as successful you know um yeah it's it's like it's almost too many to count as far as mm -hmm. when you when you meet these people they were in chicago they were in new york they were in la you know like um it, it, it's yeah it's like too many to to even count I'm, I'm so thankful and 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 i'm i'm thankful that i also found a time where there was community in 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 general you know where where i was at chicago in a time where the comedy community was growing so rapidly that you were able to make these friends, whether they stayed in comedy or not, they, they were willing to, even if it was just giving me a note on a joke or giving, giving me some insight on what they thought I was going to say. It was like, oh, you took it here. I thought you were going to take it there. You know, my co-host for my podcast, uh, Logan Nielsen, has been probably one of the main people in comedy that I've gone to with like, here's my set. Do all these ideas track, you know, though right. it's, it's like so important to build a, a community around yourself, no matter what field you're in. And I've been very blessed that the people that, that I can call upon both are successful, but also are very smart and very, very genuine. They'll tell me when something I'm doing just is not funny. Like it's just, <laughs> this is just bad. You get that real, that real time feedback. Yeah. Yeah. We, I saw Trevor Noah, it's gotta be geez, 10, 12 years ago, at least, at Just for Laughs in Montreal, mm -hmm. just as he was sort of breaking out. And we uh, didn't do it last year, but we've got a great history of stand-up at Advertising Week. We, mm -hmm. we usually do it at Gotham. Mm -hmm. And I think our first one was, uh, we had Jon Stewart and Susie Essman. Mm -hmm. We had Louis Black, we had J.B. Smoove, Hannibal Burris, Jim Brewer, Pete Holmes, Nikki Glaser. And we had Trevor Noah, and we had him the night after he started on The Daily Show. Oh, wow. And yeah. it was an anomaly. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but we ended up, I think it was with NPR, and had a conversation with Larry Wilmore as like a bonus mm -hmm. before Trevor did his stand-up. Mm -hmm. And I think we paid him $30,000. I'm guessing that wouldn't get us very far today. <laughs> Uh, but he was brilliant and mm -hmm. I give him a lot of credit. There are very few people who walk away on top. All right. We'll talk more about the daily show, but let's talk about the tonight show oh, uh, yeah. and your journey to being a writer mm -hmm. there for Jimmy Fallon. Uh, yeah. So basically I, I was working at Trader Joe's and I was doing some colleges. I did it like a, a mini college tour 
and and then there was this opportunity to do stand up on the show. And so I remember I sent my tape. And the head writer at the time, at least this is how you you never know the story because you're not in yet. Um, but this is how it was relayed to me is that we sent a tape for me to do stand up on the show. And the head writer, who must have just been one of the people who helps decide by watching the tape or something, saw my tape and was like, oh, see if he wants to do a packet. Because, you know, the head writer just liked my jokes. And so I did a packet and sent it in. And a packet, for those not in the business, you submit a bunch of jokes. Yeah, you submit a bunch of jokes. So for the packet, I submitted, I think it was two pages of monologue jokes, two big sketch ideas, like just pie in the sky, all the money in the world all the types of um, of guests you could have and all of the amount of people that you might need to have for the sketch to be funny. And so two sketches and then I think three or four desk segments. So just like things for Jimmy to do at the desk that he wasn't actually doing yet. And so I did that. I sent that in. And then um, I didn't hear back for maybe a couple of days, maybe even a week. And then I was asked to send in more. And so I was like, oh, okay, I must be on the right track if they're even continuing to talk to me. And so I did all that stuff again, except this time they wanted more monologue jokes than sketch ideas. And then I went in for an interview. And when I was interviewing with them, it was, you know, the producers, head writer and stuff, people who I would end up working with while I was there. And then they had a conversation with me and it was fun. You know, I, I feel like so many entertainment jobs, if there is an interview, it's just to make sure you're not crazy, mm-hmm. you know, cause there might be someone who's very good at the job, but then is like a lunatic in person, you know? And so, whereas I think a lot of the sussing out in other industries happens at the interview, I feel like by the time you're interviewing, for the job you're very close to just having it but they just need to make sure you can like because they've seen your work yeah exactly right right. and so so there was nothing i could bring to that meeting that i hadn't already sent in because by now i'd sent in a bunch of jokes some on quick turnaround because i think the first time they i don't even know if they gave me a deadline they were just like as soon as you can is great and then for the second round i think they want it back in like two days and so had that interview and then, yeah, then I got hired and that was great because that was my first true job in comedy. And it was my first time being around professional comedians who are writers and some of them were writers and standups. But like it was my first time being around people who, who truly had made a job out of comedy and saw it in a way that was a bit more organized and, and a bit more... Um, institutional in a way that I think even if you were by yourself in your business or in your entertainment, like let's say you're a singer, I think it's important to see yourself as the CEO of your own organization, you know? And it was the first time I was around people who thought that way. And so it was a really like, it was a really eye-opening experience. And the thing that the Tonight Show taught me, just like Daily Show taught me all these things about, about the content of story and everything, Tonight Show truly taught me to not be precious. And and I think I've been a good collaborator ever since I worked there because I've seen how through the busyness of the day, three jokes need to be cut and one of them might be yours and it's nothing personal. Or like you and this other person have the same kind of joke, but then their joke got picked because the wording was slightly tighter. Like you really learn to 
let go of some of your uh some of your preciousness around your jokes and around your ideas because in the room i i and maybe doing stand-up is what helped but in any room that you're in no matter what you do you, you this this goes for anyone who's ever in like a corporate setting when you are in the room there are going to be ideas that beat out yours it does not mean the person that pitched those ideas is better than you they just were better for the idea that was needed at the time, you know? Right. And so I never felt threatened as a comedian because I maybe it's because I had stand-up, but I would watch people pitch jokes in the room or write jokes that were similar to my jokes, and then their joke maybe got picked. But I was like, okay, if we're even neck and neck, I'm clearly on the right track because yours got picked and mine didn't. But we wrote something that was very similar. So it's not as if I'm completely off base here. Maybe I need to tighten it up. Maybe I need to just sharpen myself in, in, in the way that I think. But I'm clearly on the right track, you know? And it's got to be a great feeling, you know, early on when your stuff gets on the air. Yeah, actually, my first, my first day at the show, at Tonight's show, um, I got maybe two jokes on or three which is a lot to say that the monologue that night I think was 14 jokes like I remember so much about this day just because I was like all right this is it you know and it was my first job and so it's like seared into my mind but yeah I I think I got two jokes on and there were only 14 jokes total and there were eight monologue writers so then you know, just for the just for the ratio of the day that was great you know, because some some days they're very long monologues. Some days they're shorter ones. Some some days things get maybe cut for time, whatever. So the fact that like jokes that I wrote that day made it on air that day was like crazy to me. You know. So take us inside the writers' room. People in the regular world, outside of the comedy world. You know, and I think of the writer's room, you know, I go back in my head to the early days of, you know, your show of shows, mm -hmm. you know, and that legendary writer's room uh, with Sid Caesar and Mel Brooks. And I guess that was when you when they people say the writer's room in many ways, they're still talking about that. Mm -hmm. Of course, the writer's room is everywhere today in, in comedy, any of the late night shows and uh, TV sitcoms, etc. But few of us know what that's like to be in a writer's room. Can you paint a picture for us? I'm, yeah, I mean, every place is gonna be different because I've, I've worked on, I've worked with people and obviously I've worked in the, in the rooms of the shows that I've been on and stuff. Um, because especially things have like changed in COVID and everything. But I feel like a really great writer's room is, First of all, it's ideally offices, just because I feel like if there's a space that feels like it's yours, now you're like off to the races, just in the in the mindset of when you come in that day and you set your stuff down and, and your space doesn't feel borrowed, you know, and now people can pop in on you, you can pop in on other people, you can go over things together in real time, you can just walk up and be like, hey, does this idea make sense to you? Or like, do you think this is funny? Or And, and you can also almost perform the thing the way it is in your mind. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when I was at even Tonight Show, a day really consisted of us on the way in. So you could do it there, but on the way into the office that day, you're submitting your 
jokes for the day, which I don't even remember how many we had to write. We had we had to write a, a, a ton throughout the day, but you, you, you send in ahead a bunch and then those get compiled. Then uh, out of the ones that get compiled, some get cut, some get kept. And then you have a overall meeting that day going over this long list of jokes. And that's more so the people in the room can hear the jokes that other people did and that are sort of already set in stone a little bit. And based off that room reaction, based off what the head writer at the time feels is like going to cut through and is and is speaking best to Jimmy's voice, you know, uh, those things either get kept or cut, you know. So if you're if your joke gets a big laugh in the room from all the other writers who haven't heard it yet, that's like something that's like, oh, we got to get that to Jimmy, have him look at it, take it to rehearsal, whatever. And then from there, you know. Ideally, um, and I believe almost always, that's sort of after that process, there's not much left to do. So this is kind of where your host steps in and is reading the jokes and edits the jokes or cuts some or is like, oh, let's put these two jokes together. Like this is where your host really does some some writing of their own. And then the rehearsal is where it's like presented for the first time, either to the staff or to, you know, a guest audience that is just happy to you know, see your host or whatever. And then from there, there's usually some sort of rewrite process where people are like, uh, okay, this one kind of worked in rehearsal. I think it will work on the show or this one didn't work in rehearsal and it needs to be cut or let me try this joke one more time, but in a different way. And, and that is kind of how you go from day to day. And the nice thing about shows that are daily is that you just, if, even if today was not your day, you didn't feel funny, your jokes didn't get picked, you feel a little bit discouraged, you always have tomorrow, you know? And right. so I think that having that mindset is, is much easier to have when your thing is daily, whereas if it's, if it's a weekly show, it does become harder to be like, oof, to shake it off, you know? And you talked earlier about collaboration. That must have taken a very different turn during COVID. Yeah, because I think that that is where all of the collaboration had to be very deliberate. Like you had to actually hit this person up, whereas it's nothing to walk in someone's office and poke your head and be like, hey, are you busy? Can I run something by you? It feels much more deliberate to reach out, even if you're the writer and you are great friends, to reach out and be like, hey, what do you think of this? Because now, especially if you're typing it, now you have to type a fully formed <laughs> joke that you're trying to pitch like by the time you communicate the idea to your fellow writer a part of you is like well I should have just pitched it anyway because I just had to do all the work just now to communicate the idea as I would have had to do to pitch it you know right whereas I think that in in the office there's just a different um quickness with which you can find those nuggets in there um yeah because everything happens a little faster in person because obviously, even if you're on the phone or even if you're on a Zoom, not being in the person's face to right. like pitch it and them see the energy that you have or anything, like sometimes things sort of fall out and die over. Yeah, the I mean, communication. I, I love that we're doing this conversation in person. It's yeah. just different. You can't really look someone in the eye and read all their expressions. Yeah, on yeah. a screen the same way you can in person. Yeah, yeah no question. And can we talk about how you got to The Daily Show? Yeah, so um, 
I was at Tonight Show in 2016, and then at the beginning of 2017, I so <laughs> I left Tonight Show to do a, a pilot for a show that was hopefully going to get made, which obviously did not, because you don't know me from that show. And so sometimes you really are like taking a leap of faith, and that leap of faith has a very big drop in the in the middle. And so while we were waiting to hear back about this show and everything, I was just on the road doing stand-up and stuff, doing whatever gigs I could, collaborating with people where I could. And then um, it's funny enough, the thing, my, my favorite thing about my story of getting the job at the show is that it was me not getting what I thought I wanted or needed at the time. And I think that sometimes you, you, you deal with so much disappointment that a part of you is like, oh, this is, I, I can't believe that, I'm not getting what I want or I can't believe that um, it, it's so unfair or, you know, whatever I should have been picked, whatever. Right. And I'm not even saying I had those feelings, but I had basically applied for a correspondent position at the opposition with Jordan Klepper. Right. And I didn't get it. But the people at the at the show at Klepper show uh, were also Daily Show people because, you know, Jordan came from Daily Show and they pulled me aside for a conversation after my audition where we just chopped it up for like maybe like 30 minutes or something. It was it was like quite a while. And then they were like, you should really do a daily show packet as a as a writer. And at the time, it didn't even read to me of like, oh, that probably means I didn't get this job just now. I was just like so taken aback by that and so thankful that they really liked my ideas and stuff. So that's what I did. I, I did a packet for daily show. And obviously, I think tonight's show helped so that they knew I'd already had a job that I could keep and everything. And then, yeah, they brought me in with the producers and with Trevor and stuff like that. And uh, and yeah, and then I and then I got hired like maybe the next week. And yeah, it's been like yeah, it's been crazy ever since. It's been five, like a whirlwind. Five years. Yeah, five years. And you, yeah. Trevor took you out on the road with him. Yeah, yeah. Took me out on the road after my first year, maybe, there at the show. And, yeah, and then we did, yeah, then we did four years together. So this 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 year coming is going to be our first year not touring together because he's going to do his tour, I'm going to do mine. Right. But, yeah, so, like, like so truly thankful and so, like, I, I don't even have, you, you, sometimes you can't even put in words what a person has done for you because it's you as just you haven't seen the full effect of what it's done for you you know what i mean like like i've i've done these arena shows now i know how to move um to not only be successful but stay successful i've learned how to lead from watching him more closely and stuff so there's there's an a truly like never-ending amount of gratitude that I that I have for what you know he produced my first special um and you you cannot uh yeah man like sometimes you just cannot put into words how like kind a person has been or how how much they didn't need to help you when they could you know they they helped you when they didn't need to and I only hope that now I can like branch out in that way and and not that not that 
that's the type of not that those are his reasons or that's the type of person he is, but it's like you someone does so much for you that you want to be able to do something back, right? And you want to be able to like gift it to to someone else, and so it's like making sure that I take everything that I've been um, given, use it to earn more, use it to help spread, whether it's like knowledge or opportunity, uh, as best as I can, you know? Great. And, and the camaraderie that you're talking about there and that spirit, the daily show has been an incredible farm system of talent yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah. I'm pretty friendly with Jill Katz. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, who's been the executive producer for many years. And mm-hmm. they did one of my f- funniest things I ever saw was, um, uh, when John Stewart and Stephen Colbert did the rally to restore sanity and or fear yeah, yeah, in yeah. Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the brilliant comedy they had, at one point, they had Ozzy Osbourne do Crazy Train, the OJs did Love Train, and then they got Cat Stevens, or Yusef Salam, I guess his name is, to yeah, do yeah, yeah. Peace Train. Uh-huh. And it, it was brilliant comedy, probably quarter million people on the lawn in, in Washington. But... Under Jill's leadership, of course, going back, Greg Kinnear, then John Stewart, and Trevor, and we'll see what's next. Incredible number of people have come through there as correspondents or others, Sam B., so many others. Mm-hmm. That seems like a very special thing that's happening over there at The Daily Show. Yeah, and, and also I think that um, it, it, it speaks to like the character of the people that hire and the, and the character of the people that get hired, that it's just like the people at at that show I've leaned on so many times for for support or for guidance um and I I have a tremendous amount of respect for everyone that's that's there it's like it it it's like especially as a writer you shouldn't be like having such a hard time putting into words things that you're thinking but I I am it's it's just that I think that people were able to go on and do these great things because while you're there, it, it, it has been for me, and, and I believe it must have been for those other people, such a, a nurturing place for ideas and for personality. And I think that it really helps you. I know it helped me. It really helps you find your voice overall, and it helps you solidify the voice that you have because you have people thinking on so many different levels, and there are just so many different planes of uh, of expression there because there are some people who are like, at every step of how you can tell a joke, there's going to be a person that is... Uh, thinking about how the joke is written. Then there's a person thinking about how the joke is presented. Then there's a person thinking about how the overall environment around that joke helps to elevate it. And so all those things working in tandem lead to people having a very 360 view of storytelling, of jokes, and of perspective. So I think that that's what has given me every every uh, advantage where I am now and where I plan on going to, to be successful. Great, great, great stuff, Josh. So let's talk about where you're going. Let's talk mm-hmm. about 2023. You yeah. got a tour. What yeah. else is on the horizon for Josh Johnson? Um, so I'm definitely going to be shooting some stuff next year. I'm, I'm excited about a couple projects that I did this year, just waiting to see what happens with them next year and then um i've started working on a little bit of music that i had come out in 2021 
along with the comedy and stuff. And so I've, I've started working on some more music and everything. And I think that all that working together is going to be a big year. You know, like I plan on um, shooting a lot of comedy overall. And so even though I don't know where, know where all of it is going to end up at the moment, I'll have a lot to present to people who want to see more of my stuff. And things that people don't expect as much from me, uh, which is the music. I plan on releasing a lot of that. Touring, I think, will be a great way to just showcase what I've been working on and everything. And then as far as on-screen stuff, I'm, I'm always open and working on you know TV shows and, and uh, as much of a, even if it's behind the scenes, as, mu as much of a cultural like whirlwind as I can, can contribute to would be great you know it's like I love working on shows that speak to culture have a big moment and so I plan on doing as much of that as possible fantastic well this was a real pleasure to talk to you and it's a great story I, can I safely assume that you're uh, no longer at Trader Joe's in any way shape or fashion other yeah. than perhaps a shopper yeah I'm, a, I'm an avid shopper but yeah yeah have not have not worked there for some time but yeah sometimes you just want to make sure you know because even when I found out I, was, I got the job at Tonight Show I, in my head I was like all right Josh Johnson is a very common name let's just make sure that they didn't make a mistake so you know kept my <laughs> kept, kept all my Trader Joe's uniforms and everything just you know just for a couple more weeks just to make sure just to make sure go in on a Sunday you know just to make sure well thanks so much for doing this Josh it was great yeah thank you for having me for real appreciate you As a marketer, you know it's crucial to spend your budget wisely. Mountain's self-serve connected TV marketing software helps you do that with data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of measuring your ad's impact. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance in real time and see how it compares to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even see who's visiting your website or making purchases after watching an ad, regardless of what household device they used. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.